Uh, so with that, why don't we open up to the book of uh, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, I want to read the last section of Daniel chapter 3, and uh, we've been in this series looking at it in short um, to kind of catch us up to speed as to what we'll be looking at here today. As We're looking at a storyline that most of you guys are probably familiar with. Um, it's known as the three young Hebrew men uh, being cast into the fiery furnace, right? So um, what, I, what I wanted to do before we jump into that is just kind of start with some three statements and then a question, and then I'll give you some backstory, and then we'll read the story, then I'll finish with some final observations. So, so there you go. That's a little bit of an outline. Um, just three simple statements to kind of segue to start with. Number one, um, life is not easy, right? So um, most of you guys already know that. You've had enough life experience to realize it's not easy. If you're looking at your life and you're like, no, it's actually pretty cool, cheer up because at some point you will encounter hor- horrific, horrific like challenges, right? So cheer up. It's all good. Um, secondly, like we all face trials, um, suffering, hardships, things that, that actually befall us that we have to kind of figure out a path forward to navigate. Uh, thirdly, uh, suffering changes us. This is an important like, premise I want for us to think about, at least have these in the back of your mind as we begin to read the story. Um, when you go into suffering as a person, somebody, you will always come out differently than what you went into that suffering. Uh, you will be a different person through this formative process called suffering. Um, you, you cannot come out uh, if I can put it this way again, you cannot come out of suffering without being changed. You will be changed. The big question is, is what will you be changed towards, and how will you be changed? Those are the questions that we'll try to, try to understand a little bit. And then uh, fourthly, which is more of a question, um, what will guide you through this suffering process? Um, if you want to think of it this way, a mental map or a mind map or a way of navigating, a GPS system, I don't care what language you use, but what will be the ideas or concepts that will guide you through this? The, or the worldview or the, um, you know, Hallmark cards are great, right, when you get them. Um, they, will, they are insufficient to guide you through deep, deep suffering, right? There's nice, nice cute little pithy statements um, that in the Hallmark card or the nice little pithy cliche statement on your grandma's coffee mug. Uh, it sounds wonderful, but it will not be enough to sustain you. You need a story, a narrative that will guide you through suffering to come out the other end. Um, m- more so to come out the other end um, better than when you went into it. That's, that's the big idea. So with that being said, I want to jump into just reading the story. Uh, so there's kind of a lengthy amount that we're going to read, but I'll give you a quick little back, background on this. Again, like I said, it's about three young men uh, that are going to be going into this fiery furnace. So why is that taking, taking place? So again, this is where a little bit of the backstory. For some of you, it's review. For others of you who may not be familiar with the story, uh, this is what it's about. So um, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, they were uh, basically taken from their country. Their country was destroyed, ransacked. Um, everything that they had known was uh, basically uh, demolished. And um, this world militaristic superpower, um, uh, Babylon, led by this guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, had taken away the best of the best of Jewish people, like young, smart, intelligent, from the uh, royal lineage, uh, well-educated, you know, good-looking, uh, take them away into Babylon. And the whole idea was to um, put them under this process of deprogramming them from everything they had, that they had known Jewishness by way of Jewish culture and ideology, and to retrain them, to kind of culturally adapt them to become functional Babylonians. That was the big idea. So what you have are these, uh, the story, this is the story of Daniel. The story of Daniel is, is these young men who even though they've lost everything um, and are in this, cu- this current that's trying emphatically to change them to become Babylonian, 
they, they refrain. They, they stay Jewish. And this, it's a miracle. It's an amazing, uh, but again, it's, it's not a miracle in the sense of like, you know, God did all this. Though, you know, God is obviously at work doing this. But this was through partnership. Them saying yes to God. Them saying, God, we want to follow you. We want to walk with you. God gave them power, of course. So God, you can say that it arguably is uh, sustaining them, taking care of them through this whole thing. But it is also in partnership with their decisions that they make. So these guys remain faithful to God. So um, Nebuchadnezzar, we're told, at the beginning of chapter 3, so this is a review from last week, he gets drunk on his own power, right? And so much so that he actually creates this big, massive statue that's like 90 feet tall. It's all made out of gold, part of the gold-plated statue, right? And he demands, he makes this demand that everybody in his entire kingdom bow down and worship the statue, which is, uh, you know, it's an image of himself. It's an image of Babylon. It's an image of uh, the, the conquering and abilities of Babylon, the innovation, the technology of Babylon, the militaristic power of Babylon, everything else you can imagine. And um, he says, oh, by the way, if, if, if you do not bow down and worship, then you will be dismembered. You will literally be torn limb from limb and your house will be destroyed. So obviously there's a deep incentive to want to bow down and worship this big image, all right? Um, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the beginning of Daniel chapter 3, uh, they refuse. They say, we're servants of Yahweh, and we will not bend our knee to worship this false entity, this false god, this guy that's drunk in his own power. He's obviously clearly um, filled with himself. We you know, call it prideful arrogance, a big black hole, right? Just, just every, sucking everything into himself. That's what black holes do, right? And that's what selfishness does. Uh, love, on the other hand, if you want to think of it this way, love is a garden. Love is life-giving. You've been around people that are, that are full of love. You walk away and you're like, man, I feel really like full and rich and full of life because you've just been around. You've been feasting on somebody that is a life-giving human being. And so this guy obviously brings them into his black hole. And what ends up happening is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down in worship. And so the king says, I'm going to cast you into the fire furnace. And that's where we pick up the story. So in Daniel chapter 3, verse 19, uh, he says this. Uh, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And then he ordered some of his mighty men and his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then cast them in the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, so make sure you pay attention to that little phrase, bound, because that'll kind of play back in the story. So imagine them wearing shackles. Um, they have their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments. That, that also plays in the story as well, because what, what would you imagine would happen to your clothing um, if it's subjected to fire, right? You'd suspect it would get burnt, right? That's the way that we typically think. And then it goes on to say, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. So again, paying just attention to the narrative, this is the second time, by the way, uh, the description is used, the burning, fiery furnace. Uh, when just the word furnace would have been suitable, right? Because you think of typically furnaces are burning and fiery. But the author wants to make sure that we did not miss that like little detail. That it's not only just a furnace, but it's a burning, fiery furnace. And not only that, just in case you missed the obvious, he says it three times, right? So he just wants to make sure you get it. And verse 22 is, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound, again, the word bound, into the fiery furnace. All right, now in verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. 
he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true king. Then he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. So again, something about something in the fire, they're unbound, right? So again, we'll finish up the rest of the story. We'll circle back. Verse 26, then, uh, sorry, next slide. Is that right? Okay, sorry. Then Nebu- I didn't, they're so quick, I didn't even notice it. Good job, guys. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning, fiery furnace. And which, by the way, each of these sentences, if you notice, they all start with, and then Nebuchadnezzar. So, that's, there we go. Anyways, uh, he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, God, come out, come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. The smell of fire had not come upon them, right? I mean, you've all, you've all been to, like, campfires down, you know, up at Plastica Creek or down at the beach, and in your Patagonia jacket, and it smells like fire for the next, like, eight months, right? So apparently these guys, there's nothing in terms of smell upon them, so something miraculous, obviously, is, is happening here that we're being informed of. And then Nebuchadnezzar answered in verse 28, and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies after to, uh, rather than serve and worship the God uh, except their own God. So this is kind of shocking because he's actually commending him. He's like, look, after this whole scenario, this miracle of you guys coming through, he's actually coming in. He's like, this is amazing that, that you guys actually had so much fear in your heart towards your God that you actually withstood me. And there's this, this cra- crazy commendation that's going on right there. And then it says, therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. He's got an anger problem. And their houses laid in ruins. And there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, good story, yeah? Good story. So, that's what I want to take a look at here this morning. Is just I want to just make um, some, draw some observations with regard to this. So, I want to take a look at basically five things. We'll just kind of go through these one by one. We'll make some observations of the text, and I'll just wrap it up. So, number one, we'll take a look at what they faced. Uh, to what they did, what they lost, what they found, and then what they gained. So let's take a look at that. Number one, what they faced, what they faced. What we're told is that they, they, they faced uh, persecution, trial, oppression. They, they faced a uh, challenge to their faith. So the big question was, how are they going to respond in the face of trial or opposition? Right? So the question is, how will they respond in the face of opposition? Now, many of us, we might go through challenges and hardships and opposition, things that, that try us or test us. And the question is, what type of person will you be? Bigger question is, really, what are you made of? What's under the hood? Not, not how nice is the wax job on your vehicle, your car, your life. Not, how you, not, not your internet you. Right? Not who you are on social media, not who you are in terms of you wanting everyone else to know and see who you are, but what's under the hood? What are you truly made of? It's really the question of character. Who are you when nobody else is watching? You know, someone's put it this way the reputation is what everybody thinks of you, character is what you really are when nobody's watching. Think about that. Reputation. We live for reputation, don't we? We place greater value on reputation. 
But it's character that matters, really, ultimately, at the end of the day. Character, who you truly are. And so what happens, what these guys face, is they face really kind of a, 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 a pushing, an oppression, a pressing against their character. What are they truly made of? Now, I was thinking about it in this context, that when we think about the subject of uh, uh, trials and hardships and oppression uh, or trouble, there's different sources from which this comes from. I want to just go through three of them real quickly. We'll just make some observations. Number one, we know that suffering and hardship and trial can come through human experience. Um, You can get sick. You can be in a car accident. You can have something devastating happen to you that was unplanned, unscripted, off-narrative. You didn't know it was going to come. And now you're faced with this crisis. How am I going to respond to this particular circumstance? So there's human suffering. Um, We oftentimes face human suffering. We oftentimes are the source of human suffering for other people. You can make a bad decision. So let's put it this way. If you, you know, um, I don't know, get drunk and then get behind a wheel and you do something. You do something to somebody else, you are, you are now going to be a victim to those consequences or those decisions that you made. That's not really a trial in this. I mean, it will be a trial. How will you navigate the, the consequences of decisions that you made? But in reality, it was, it was brought upon by decisions and factors that we had control over, but in a sense, they controlled us. Or we gave into their controlling, their influence, and it caused havoc over our lives, chaos over our lives. So Chaos can oftentimes be unleashed. Suffering can be unleashed by way of our own human experience, things that we do, things that are done to us. Secondly, we know that there is this element uh, source in terms of spiritual or emotional. So I'm going to kind of put the two together, though I would nuance them um, to some degree. Now, on the sense of spiritual, we were told, according to the story of the Bible, that what we know, what we see in this tangible realm, meaning those things that, which are terrestrial, those things that are home on this planet, right? Um, there is another world that the Bible actually alludes to and identifies and describes. We could call that spiritual. It's not terrestrial, it's spiritual, meaning it's intangible. It does not have a physical form or makeup or nature. It's intangible. It has no body. So we see this kind of take form and take shape even in the very beginning of the Bible um, where we're introduced to the serpent who doesn't seem to be operating just merely as a serpent, because most serpents, A, don't talk, and B, they don't tempt. And so in this case, there's something unique going on here. This serpent obviously maybe has been hijacked by a spiritual entity or force. And that being said, this spiritual influence was trying to usurp the control and authority over Adam and Eve, and ultimately eventually won, which brought chaos, right? So we know that spiritual entities can often unleash chaos and suffering and hardship and trial in our lives that can sometimes even be linked to emotional suffering. I think of uh, Jesus when he is doing his earthly ministry. Uh, he encounters this guy. We're told that he's living in the tombs and he's cutting himself. So the whole practice of cutting is not modern. It's been going on for a long time. It's a form of self-mutilation, self-harm that says I'm so confused and frustrated and angry and I wish I didn't live or so overcome by guilt and or shame that there's just a form of mutilation of one's body. So this guy is literally mutilating his own body. Jesus comes up to him. He's tormented by no doubt spirits but also by his own guilt, conscious, demonic activity that's happening. And Jesus liberates him. And this phrase is so fantastic. It just says, and there he is sitting by himself in his own right mind. Like Jesus restores people. You know that Jesus can restore you. Like no matter what type of suffering or chaos you have felt, no matter how dark that cloud might feel 
or be observant within your own life, there's healing for that. Jesus will give us. He'll deliver. That's what he wants to do. So we see that there is also a source of spiritual and emotional suffering that's linked to this. Now, thirdly, um, sometimes the, the source of trouble, believe it or not, shockingly, can even be God. So, for example, the psalmist says God gives grace to the humble, but he rejects or resists the proud. Now, think about that. There are actually people, we like to tend to create gods in our own image or God in our own image. We're like, God is always universally loving. That's true. God is love. But there are also times where God actually stands in opposition to people, to others. And the question has to be asked, like, what is the makeup? What is the posture of those that bring about this resistance of God to that other? Uh, and it, we're told it's pride. Being prideful, being, being prideful, being full of, uh, acting proud within one's life, thinking more of oneself than really what is real. And what we see here is that in some context, we even see that Jesus interacting with people. Jesus actually had enemies, believe it or not. It wasn't just simply that people didn't like Jesus. There were people that I think Jesus encountered that he was deeply frustrated with how they acted and how they mistreated other people. They were prideful. And they were constantly in conflict with Jesus. So for some of us, you know, you got to think about this. Maybe the source of some of our suffering and angst and anxiety and hardship in life is actually the fact that we are resisting God. We're prideful. We have hardened our heart the way Pharaoh did, did to God. And therefore, there is a resistance of God to us. Now, now God will always, always come and uh, change that posture as he sees us changing our hearts to going from pridefulness and arrogance to taking a posture of humility of turning to God. And so these are just some of the things to consider that this is what they faced was in the form and the shape of trial. Secondly, take a look at what they did. The second thing, what they did. Now in the text, we're told very clearly that as they were cast into the fire, they, they walked. Um, so we know, first of all, that they walked. Now, there's what's called commonly the Septuagint, which uh, uh, what's called oftentimes apocryphal books in the Bible, which we wouldn't necessarily as, you know, modern Western uh, evangelical people, we wouldn't necessarily see this as kind of an inspired portion of the, of the Bible. These were additions that later came along. And this is one of those later additions, what's known as the Septuagint. And there are three actual additions that were added to the book of Daniel. Um, two of these are what we're going to read about right now. The third is called Bell and the Dragon, which is a whole other thing I won't even get into. But the point that I would just make is this, is that this little addition that was added, again, like I said, it's, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is, we know for sure this is what happened because this is what this is saying. But it's an interesting addition to just consider. And I don't think it's, it's wrong. I, I think it's probably correct. But again, leave that for what it is. Here's what it says in the Septuagint version of this edition. It says, when they were cast in, they walked around, so we already got that, in the midst of the flames, singing hymns to God and blessing the Lord. And then Azariah stood up. He's one of the guys that was in the fire. He uh, stood still in the flame and he prayed out, blessed are you, O Lord, God of our fathers, to be praised and exalted above all forever. So again, as a way of this as an addition to consider, think about uh, number one, obviously, we know for sure they, they, they walked. They just, meaning, just through life. They're not doing a fire dance. They're just walking. There's some degree of, like, casuality, of, that's even a word, of just walking through this deep sense of temptation. They're not running. They're not sprinting. They're not freaking. They're just walking. 
something about the, the posture of them just in the midst of this whole scenario. And then, again, if these other two uh, traditions could be uh, received or believed or whatever, uh, or valid, validated, then we also know that they, they sang and they prayed, which, again, uh, this is what we often have seen with people that have gone through tremendous suffering and hardship. Uh, we know that the Apostle Paul, for example, in the New Testament, you have this, this guy that goes around planting churches, and he was constantly causing, uh, or there was conflict that was following Paul everywhere he went, where he went. And that one scene, Paul is actually thrown in prison. He's with a guy by the name of Barnabas. And in the midst of the prison, in the middle of the night, we're told, like, in the middle of the night, they begin to sing. So here's Paul in, in, a, in a Roman prison, probably in stocks, right? You know, that thing where they kind of wrap around your head and your arms are in there. And like, you literally can't move. You're bound. And here's Paul singing hymns to God in the middle of the night. What was he singing? Probably psalms and probably praying. And we're told that then the guard heard this. And, it, and the, he's blown away by this because there's something beautiful about observing people that are going through tremendous suffering. And yet there's something that's not hardened about them. They're not cynical. They're not jaded. They're not angry with everybody. They're, they don't have a chip on their shoulder. They're not, they're not angry with you because you're not constantly asking them, how are you doing? There, there's something about them that is just life-giving. So that's what we see about these guys is that they're, they're just walking. They're not rushed. They're not freaking out. They're not tripping. They're just in the midst of the fire walking, singing, and possibly praying as well, no doubt. So uh, thirdly, we also see what they lost. Uh, Daniel 3.25, remember we talked about they were cast into the fire with, with bonds. But we're also told this little story, this little detail, that once they were in the fire, they lost their shackles. Listen how C.H. Spurgeon put this. He's one of my favorite preachers. He said this. It's fantastic. Next slide. He says, uh, the fire did not hurt them, but it snapped their bonds. What a blessed loss this fire brought. A true Christian's losses are gains in other shape. Now, beloved, observe carefully that many of God's servants never know the fullness of spiritual liberty until they're cast into the fire. Just pause and think about that. Just think about what Spurgeon's saying. That many, spiritual, or many of God's servants, they never know fullness of spiritual liberty until, until the fire so we live in a culture, just to put this into context, we live in a culture that on the one hand, we do everything we can to avoid fire. We do everything we can to avoid having to go through suffering or hardship or pain or if we're in the midst of it. And we know it's already smacked us between the face and we don't know what else to do now. Now what we can do in the midst of trial and suffering hardship is to somehow knock the edge off. So we get drunk, we take drugs, we smoke weed, we just, we, I mean, there's so many distractions. We live in a world full of distractions just to knock the edge of suffering off, to make it a little bit more bearable. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that Spurgeon is actually saying that oftentimes God's people, we gain spiritual liberty as we go through the fire. So the very thing that we are constantly trying to avoid or trying to numb ourselves to in the midst of it is the very thing that God's saying, no, you don't understand. This is my servant. This is my servant to shape you, to help you, to lift up the hood and to build what's in the engine, to make you a new person. That very thing you're trying to avoid or knock away from or remove yourself from or to knock the edge off is the very thing that God's saying, I want to use. I'm allowing this in your life to shape you into the type of person. 
uh, he goes on to say that many of them are bound and fettered until they get into the flame and the fire consumes their bonds. You know, it's an interesting thing, like I mentioned to you guys earlier, that suffering will shape you. There's one guarantee I can absolutely, constantly, repeatedly uh, make certain what will be always happening. Uh, when you go through suffering, like I said earlier, you will not come out unchanged. You will always be changed. That's a guarantee. Um, one, uh, see Spurgeon actually said this before as well. I don't know if I have a slide for this. But he says, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel which melts some hearts to repentance also hardens others in their sins. Just pause and think about that. The same sun. So you go outside, nice hot day. I think it's supposed to be a nice day today, which would be great. So I'll probably do what I typically do. Is just, I'll go find a good wave and I'll go surf. Because that's all we ever do. That's all I ever do. I'm just kidding. Um, but that same sun, you know, which gives you a nice golden brown tan, is the same sun that will actually melt um, wax. It's also the same sun which will actually harden clay. I mean, make it so rock hard that, that the analogy is obvious, like with regard to our relationship with the God. You, we've all met people that have gone through suffering. Um, someone once also put it this way. So here's a nice cliche you can put on your next T-shirt. Um, suffering will either make you a better person or a bitter, bitter person. It'll either make you better or bitter. There's total truth to that. I mean, I mean, think about it this way. Have you ever met people that have gone through tremendous suffering and they are the most horrible people to be around. You don't want to talk to them. You don't want to be around them. They're painful because here's what oftentimes happens is hurt people, as some have said, end up hurting people. Oftentimes the hurt that they're causing upon other people is directly linked to the fact that they have been hurt. In other words, the pain, the sun that shined upon them, that baked them into hardness really at the end of the day is, is deeply painful. So therefore they want to spread that pain around to other people. But then you can meet other people that have gone through horrendous circumstances and they come out on the other end and they're deeply, they're humble, they're kind, they're other-centered, they're concerned about you, they've gone through horrendous circumstances and they're the one asking you, how, how are you doing? And in your mind, you're like, oh my gosh, like you've gone through horrible circumstances and you're asking me, like my life compared, my suffering compared to yours is nothing and yet you're thinking about me. So the question is, is what type of substance is going into the suffering, is going to really determine what will come out of the suffering. You guys follow? So this is one of the reasons why the Bible is constantly saying, watch your heart, guard your heart, know what your heart is made out of. Or at least we have, we don't, we, again, another nice little, this is like a morning full of like nice Christian cliches. You're welcome. Um, like we don't, you don't have any control over your circumstances, but you do have control over how you respond to the circumstances. The cynicism, the anger, the bitterness, the rage, the vengeance, all that stuff will ultimately just morph you into something that's unhuman and ultimately dehumanizes everybody else around you. Or you can come out the other end more human, more empathic, right? More full of sensitivity, more full of compassion, because of the stuff that went into the fire, came out more fully alive. And that's what we see with these guys. So number one, we see what they faced. Number two, we see what they did. Number three, we see what they lost. Number four, we see what they found. So Daniel chapter three, verse 25, we re-enter into the text, and we'll wrap it up with some final thoughts. 
So then the king answered, and they said to them, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance is of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Now, there's all this speculation. You know, what did the king mean by the son of the god? Um, we oftentimes immediately jump to saying, well, he saw Jesus. Like, the text doesn't tell us he saw Jesus. I mean, I, I think it's totally fine to assume that it was Jesus. But um, what did the king see? Again, raise all sorts of speculation. The word that's actually used there probably is a word that refers to like gods or divine beings, uh, something spiritual, something intangible. So whatever it is that this king sees, it's, it's a fourth that's alongside these uh, three men that are walking through there. So what they find, um, at least perhaps, whether, and again, this, it's an interesting thought to me. There's no indication that these guys even knew there's a fourth with them. There's no indication in the text. So it's not like they're walking with this guy, they're chatting, they're having conversation. There's nothing that would indicate that they actually were aware of the presence of the fourth, which, again, I think it's a good argument to presuppose or, or to assume. This is probably the presence of God in some form, of, some form or another, right? Um, or if anything, a, a messenger, an angel, uh, something sent by God to demonstrate his, his presence in the midst of this thing. So I think it's safe to assume that. But again, there's no indication that these guys were even aware of that. And it wasn't until later that the king identifies, like, who's the fourth? It's like the son of the gods, or he's like, you know, a divine being. But if what's happening here is that they weren't aware of the presence that was alongside them, that's, that's kind of an interesting uh, reality that oftentimes we face. Because sometimes we can be going through really hard circumstances in our life, and we're not aware of God's presence. Have you ever been in moments like that? Where you're not even aware, like, is God even around? We start asking these questions. Is God even here? It's what some scholars and theologians and writers and people that have followed Jesus for a very, very long time throughout Christian history would observe and describe as like the dark night of the soul. Where you're in the midst of this, this moment where it feels dark. You feel as if God's presence really isn't there. You cry out to them. It feels like it's an echo chamber. Anybody, anybody there? Anybody ever felt that, right? Um, and the point that I'd make is this, is that it wasn't until another person from the outside observed and said, made his observations known. Like, it looked like there was another that was with you. That sometimes people might come to you and they're like, you know what? Even though you might feel like you're not alive, there's something about you in the midst of this situation that looks like you're, you're growing, you're different. Uh, there's a sense of calm or something about you that's, that's unique in the midst of this deep circumstance that you're facing right now. And so the point is, is that we see that they, either way, whether or not they knew that there was this fourth presence that was with them in the midst of this fire, or they didn't learn of it until afterwards, one thing is for sure. This is what they found. They found that God was actually with them. So this might be a word for some of you, because for some of you, you're going through these deep, dark moments filled with trial. It could be because of choices you made. It could be because of choices someone else made about you or for you or on your behalf that left uh, you dealing with chaos, or it might be as a result of spiritual torment or uh, emotional torment, or it may be that you're in the status where you are at odds with God. You've uh, elevated your heart, and wherever you're at, my encouragement for you to consider, to think about at least the first two categories of human suffering or spiritual suffering or emotional suffering, that God wants you to know you're not abandoned. You're not alone. You may feel alone. You may feel abandoned. And these are stories that we have to keep going back to. And what I want you to consider is that this is not because you feel like there is God with you. One thing I love about coming back to the scripture and the stories of the Bible is that this is, this is like 2,500 years old, if not older. 
We're literally building our life upon something that has deep, deep historical roots. And I say this to you guys all the time, but the fact of the matter is we have to have some story to live according to. We cannot live for very long in a chamber that has no meaning whatsoever. It's one of the moments, one of the reasons why we are, I think, in a crisis in our world today. It's because postmodern deconstructionalism have, has, has left, for the most part, the landscape in which we inhabit, just like, uh, I don't know, post-apocalyptic, right? Uh, dystopic. I think it's probably one of the reasons why we love movies like Hunger Games, because that is the world in which we inhabit, right? It's try, how do we navigate this world that's just been ruined and destroyed by all of these other former generations? Or maybe I was a contributor to this as well. But how do we navigate in a world that's just dystopic? And my input to you would be tether yourself to the ancient story. Rediscover it. Re-anchor your life in, in this story. And by doing so, you will be anchoring yourself into the story that God began, God is doing, and God will bring to a total fulfillment. Because what I've oftentimes noticed is that dystopic stories really have no good end. Because there really is no good end. It's short-lived, short-sighted, it's just survival. And when I see these guys walking through the fire, they're not just surviving. They come out the other end fully alive. That's what the gospel offers us. I want to finally finish with this last thought, what they gained. So we know in the story that the king obviously commends them. He recognizes them for who they are, for what they've done. He honors them. And then he ultimately elevates them, raises them to these you know, positions of high honor and all that. Um, the writer in the New Testament, Peter, obviously one of the followers of Jesus, uh, writes, and he's writing to a church community. He actually, it's, he uses language that's very exilic, right? It's written to people that are living within exile. He actually even describes, you know, to the, to the followers of Jesus that are living in Babylon. So he uses language that's very consistent or similar in fashion to the book of Daniel. And so he talks about fiery trials. So my, my guess is he's no doubt thinking of the script of the story of Daniel as he writes this. But listen to what he says. These trials that you're currently going through will show that your faith is genuine. It's true. It's not fake. It's not, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the, the language that he uses here uh, it's, uh, is a word that basically means without wax. So if you were to make pottery back in that day, and let's say, for example, that was your job, and let's say you dropped the pottery and it broke, well, you could put wax in the midst of that, like, crack, and you can deceive people who are going to buy that, like, nice, cool, hipster, like, ceramic, you know, coffee cup. And, uh, and when they get it home and they pour their hot, pour-over coffee into that, like, nice, ceramic, hipster coffee cup, um, that wax will react to the heat, and it will melt, and it will show it for what it really is. You guys following that's what he does. It will show you for who you really are. And what is what he's saying? The trials will show your faith as being without wax. It's just genuine. It's what, it's what you're truly made of. It's, again, it's that analogy of what's under the hood. 
Not just what your reputation is, but what your character is. And he finishes with this thought. He says, this being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor in the day of Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. This phrase is an interesting phrase to translate from the Greek, and I just I, I want to emphasize it. He says this, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor. Does anybody else have a different translation than that? It will bring you much praise, glory, and honor. Anybody else have a different translation? Anybody? Is audience participation. May result in? Um, may result in what? Your praise? Praise. Praise. It's a little bit ambiguous. So that, that translation is there. Is it praise to God? Praise that comes upon you? Uh, you know, the point that I'd make is this, is that this is one of those passages in the New Testament that sometimes can be a little bit hard to translate. And so the question is, is this praise when you go through hard trials, tough circumstances, that you come out on top on the other end? Is this like, oh, man, God is so good and he did amazing things? Or is this God saying, oh, my gosh, I want to commend you? And I, I think the answer is honestly yes to both. This is what C.S. Lewis writes about in this entire book called um, The Weight of Glory. And what he does in quick snapshot and summary, he basically describes it this way, that, that glory can either be like a luminous light, you know, that when something happens to you, you come to life, you come to light, right? Uh, I mentioned this maybe a couple weeks ago, but the, the picture of when I remember when my kids were young, um, when I, and even not just when they're young as well, but even now, but especially when they were young, I would go to them and praise them. I'm so proud of you, Daddy, so happy. You did such a good job. You cleaned your bedroom. You put away the dishes. You know, whatever. Like, Daddy's so proud of you. Uh, they come to life. They beam, right? We said they beam. They come, to, they come alive. But his, his other way of describing it is it's not just something luminescent. It's also in terms of being showered with commendation, God actually commending. In other words, if I can put it in another context, the one opinion in the entire universe that matters above any other opinion, not who are on your social media, not your boss, not your daddy, but the one opinion that matters in the entire universe, God, he commends you. It's what Jesus said when you come out the other side of passing through what Old Testament writers says, the valley, the shadow of death, that Jesus says, well done. My father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. I, I wonder for some of us how much just pausing enough to receive that truth, not just as a theological concept, but as a reality that you imbibe, that you live into, of knowing that the Father, God, who loves you, who sees what you're going through, who knows the pain, the hardship, the suffering, the trials, the decisions that you've made in the midst of chaos to try to honor God, that that one who loves you, knows you, will one day look at you and say, well done. My good and faithful servant, enter into the joy that now belongs to you. This is yours. This is the image I think Peter's emphasizing. Take a look at how Paul would say this later on. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, another famous passage, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. The sufferings, what are they that we may be thrown in? Paul says, look, it's tough, they're big, they're weighty. Meaning they have magnitude. 
that mass. You know what I'm talking about. When you've been in circumstances of deep pain, you feel like there's a crushing weight over your soul. It's what we get the word depression from, by the way. It, it, something is pressing you. It's pushing out the life out of you. That's, that's depressing. If you were to blow up a balloon and then depress it, you're pushing out all of the air, the life within it. And that's what happens. But Paul's saying, look, I'm calculating. I'm figuring this all out. I'm realizing, I'm reckoning that, that nothing that I'm going through right now in this pleasant, present life cannot be compared to the glory, the commendation, the honor that comes from the Father over those who faithfully hold on, more accurately, who faithfully hold on to those who are being held on to by God, God holding us. I want to finish with a passage out of the book of Job. In fact, I'll have the worship team come on up, and I just want you to think about this as these guys are coming up. Um, it's the passage where, at the very end of the book of Job, some of you are probably familiar with the story. Job goes through incredible suffering and hardship and trial, and he's got a handful of friends, and these guys are horrible human beings, right? They're constantly giving him, if you're familiar with the story, like really, really bad advice. They're basically like, good, God is just. Um, God doesn't do bad things, and this can't be God. So therefore, this must be you. You must be a horrible person, Job. You must act like everything's good. But in, at the very beginning of the story of Job, we're actually told this little instruction or this little insight about who Job is. God says that this is Job. He's just in all of his ways. And then later on in the story, these guys are accusing him, like, you must be unjust. And at the very end of the story, um, God is about to do something new and fresh in Job's life. And God then rebukes these you know, horrible human beings that are, quote-unquote, Job's friends. And then they, God tells these guys, he's like, look, I'm, I'm pretty mad at you. I'm not happy with what and how you've treated my servant Job. And, uh, and what I want you to do is I want you to go to Job, ask Job to pray for you, and uh, then we'll go from there. So they, they go to Job. And this is a story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you can read it. But I really want to focus on verse 10, which happens to not actually be there. So I, I want you to just listen to this. So um, listen to this. So these guys go to Job. Sorry, I had surf report on my phone, so I got I to gotta go back here. I'm just kidding. Um, they, they go to Job, and then Job ends up basically in verse 10. He says, when Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. I, I don't know if you caught that or not, but here's what happens. Job's friends come to him, and they've just taken everything from Job. They, in fact, they've even added more difficulty in Job's life, because not only did Job have suffering, but now they actually compounded his suffering with guilt and shame. Did you catch that? It's the whole story of the book of Job. Like, Job, yeah, suffering is horrible and bad, but it's probably because you've done something stupid that God's really, really angry with you, and that's, you brought all this stuff, chaos in your life. And uh, they come to Job, and they're like, hey, Job, um, God asks us to have you pray for us um, so that we don't die. And uh, could, you, could you pray for us? I know we've been horrible human beings. Um, we've been nothing close to anything that resembles a friend. Uh, we've been more like frenemies. But, um, but we're asking you, would, would you pray for us? And here's the thing. Verse 10. As Job prayed, then God restored. Just pause and think about that. Many of us, we say something along those lines. When God, when God restores, then I'll pray. When God frees me from this trial or this hardship or this furnace, then I'll worship. 
when God moves and does something different or gives me a better diagnosis or gets me cured, then I will pray. But Job, what we see is in the midst of suffering, he prays, intercedes for those who are horrible people, and then God makes all things new. That's the story of Jesus. That the just, the just one, was unjustly absorbing deep pain and anguish and suffering and hardship. And on the cross, Jesus prays. He prays for those that have been ignorant and those that, who have been offensive. He prays for you and I. And God responds to him. God hears his prayer. Third day later, Jesus rises again from the dead and gives us what we do not deserve. So at the end of the day, we have a God who deeply is committed to us. So I don't know where you're at in the fire or how this message or story even resonates with you, but my hope would be that it would open your eyes to another way to go through suffering. You need a story. You cannot enter suffering without a narrative that is way beyond you. And I would suggest any narrative that's 50 years old in America will be insufficient to carry you through the weightiness of suffering. You will be changed in the fire. My hope would be that you would be changed to come out the other end better, more humble, more open to the heart of God, more empathic. And that can happen as we trust in the one who loves us. So why don't we all